You know, I got my bachelor's degree in business. I worked for my master's, you know, business. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know a whole lot about my culture, you know, but I had friends and cousins here. And one of my cousins told me, after I learned some things, she said, yeah, when you first came here, you were real Manganish, she says. Mangani is the word for white man. So she called me Manganish because I was, you know, I, I had these ideas that I learned in college, you know. Like what? Oh, uh, the management tools. One of them was the control thing. You know, you want to control your employees to make sure they're productive and effective and all this stuff. So I was kind of hard on employees. You know, you should be productive. You know, this is what you're paid to do, that kind of stuff. So I would wear business suits and high heels and do my nails and have makeup and my hair is all fancy and all that. So that was my Manganish days when I was, when I was the assistant controller for the tribe. So I did the big money thing for the tribe, but I had like ooh, 19 employees, I think, that I had to supervise. And sometimes I think about it and I just think, oh my God, because the culture, the way the people are is like, we're family, you know, we help each other. And some of the stuff that they do today, I understand it, but then I didn't. Uh, and I always feel bad about this one is that I had an employee who got cancer and uh, worked in the accounting office, and she ran out of sick leave. And me being, you know, I call it stupid now, and I feel real bad about it. It's like, well, you ran out of leave, and, you know, we can't pay you. You don't have any more leave. Not thinking that... You know, she has family in the community. She has children. You know, that's the culture part. We help each other. You know, we don't turn our back on anybody. And I feel today that I turn my back on her because of my colonization ideas of what a manager or director does. So I didn't pay her, and it just caused more stress for her, you know, with her cancer, and she couldn't pay her bills, and all this stuff was happening. And, you know, eventually her cancer got worse, and, you know, she passed away. So I think about that now, and I think we help each other, you know. In this other world of capitalism and, you know, being so productive and it's all about the money, you know, we want to make sure that we're getting our money's worth. That's where I was, you know. I want everybody to be effective because, dang it, you know, we get paid this and we work 8 to 5 and you only got this much break time and you better be at your office and you better be, you know, that mentality. But that's the white man colonized idea that I learned when I was in school. So that's colonization. And it's all about money. It's the capitalistic idea, the material wealth, you know, that stuff. That's being colonized because as a people, you know, those old folks used to tell us, don't ever do anything to work against your own people. We're connected there, all of us here. We're, we're related or we're all Apache people. So I understand that now, before I didn't. Mm. So that's probably what I want to teach young people, because I know they're in the same boat I was. They're going to school, getting these degrees. They come back, and they're mad because they can't get jobs. The way the old folks used to tell me that they beat their chest like this and say, I'm this, I'm that, I got a degree, I'm a doctor, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. But they don't have the experience, and they don't understand the Apache culture and the Apache ways. Because I was there, too, I know, because I did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I would never do that now. Never. Mm -hmm. Out Here is a folklore series determined to bring America together. It's a love letter to people whose voices deserve to be heard. Okay, my name is Laureen Willis. 
I'm 65 years old. Uh, I guess I'm considered elder now. It's hard to accept that status, but I guess I am. You know, my mother is Hickory Apache, so in our way as Apaches, I'm Hickory Apache, a member of the tribe here. But my father is an Oklahoma Choctaw, so I always want to honor him, too, because I have Choctaw blood in me. I was raised uh, in Oklahoma because my mom, the adventurous Apache woman way back in the 40s, got a nursing degree, and then she went to Choctaw country and worked at an Indian hospital there, and there's where she met my father. So we lived there my young life, but we were always out here on the reservation during the summers because my mom said it was just too hot in Oklahoma. So we came out here and stayed with my grandpa and grandma in the summers, and it was an interesting experience for us as young children because it felt like you just walked back in time because they had a ranch out on the reservation. There was no running water and no electricity, and we learned how to survive out there with none of the conveniences you know, that we were used to living in Oklahoma. But it just seemed like my mom and dad kept us in Oklahoma so we could get a good education, so we went to school there. So I've been living here in Dulce, you know, off and on the summers. I think I started living here permanently when I was like 19, 20 years old. So I've been here like, oh God, it's like over 40 years that I've lived here in Dulce, worked wow. for the tribe, gone through some other phases in life, but basically I've been here for a long time. What about love? You ever been in love? A few times. <laughs> I've been married twice. I don't know that I'm very good at being in love because it takes over. I don't know if you know what a codependent is. It's someone that, that loses themselves to please the other person. I think that's my experience with it because I can't seem to keep my own identity separate from whoever it is I'm supposedly in love with. My first marriage, I married a guy who was from Lumberton, our Spanish community. He was macho man. You know, and he was actually my supplier because I did a lot of cocaine and stuff. And uh, he was very violent. And I was ashamed, you know. I, I didn't want people to know that I was going through this, you know, with this man. I had a, a friend that somehow we hooked up because she was married to the same kind of man I was. And she didn't want to say anything. And then she, somehow she mentioned it. And uh, she said, you should read this book called Women Who Love Too Much. And then when I read that book, I realized that I'm not the only one, because I thought I was. I always thought I was the only one. I thought everybody had beautiful lives out there, and here I was living this secret, you know, with a violent man. And So I think that's what changed it, because from that point on, her and I, you know, we got into a lot of counseling. We did the Al-Anon program. We just did a lot of stuff to get ourselves out of those relationships until we got divorced. And it took us a while to get our divorce, but that was one of the main things because I, I guess I just felt like I was trapped, you mm -hmm. know, when you're in that kind of relationship. And, you know, we went to Las Vegas together. First time, we were like little kids. <laughs> you know? Because we were free, you know, that, that was one amazing thing that happened. And I always be thankful to her because she, she helped me get through that. That was a big change. Mm. I'm grateful and I'm appreciative for some of it because this house, this house right here, if it wasn't for my first husband, I'd have never done this. You know, as a good wife that I was, he wanted a house. So we got this house because he wanted it. Nothing that I would have done. 
he wanted some land so he could have his horses, so I applied for 19 acres from the tribe you know, that's assigned to me because he wanted to have a place for his horses. Well, he's not here anymore, and look what I have. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's my experience of love with a, a partner. Do you like to be vulnerable? No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I think I'm a control freak. You know, when you're vulnerable, you get hurt. It's hard for me to mm-hmm. be vulnerable. And I think it's part of the way I was raised. You know, my mother, she wasn't a real loving person. They took her from her mother when she was five and put her in a boarding school. So her mother didn't get a chance to raise her. She was just raised in boarding school and schools. And then she was way over there in Oklahoma raising six kids. She didn't have the support of her family. Mm-hmm. So she was very reserved. She wasn't very affectionate. But she fed us and clothed us and did the necessary things to take care of us. So I guess I kind of grew that way, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not very affectionate. My daughter, she gets mad at me because she has some very affectionate in-laws, you know, from her dad's side. They are. And I think a lot of the Apache people are like that. Because, you know, it's a boarding school experience. But if you know the language, it can come through in language. They say that there's no word for I love you. It's all about showing. You show people you love them. You don't use those words. You can say, like, Tyler Jaw, you know, my grandson, or those kind of words. But to say, you know, I love you, they say there's no such word. Mm. Feel connected to the land? Of course, yeah. That's the best part of it. Just right here where I live, because I live kind of to the outskirts of town. You know, bear have come up here, the deer elk. I haven't seen the elk, but they've seen their tracks. We even had Bigfoot come up, you know, to our area. Right here at my house, too. You know, it's just beautiful if you ever come up into these areas, you know, the mountains and kind of like the desert areas on the south side of the reservation. Right now, I think a lot of people were looking for antlers, and you can go out, you can gather, you know, like the Indian tea or some of the other plants that are out there. You know, we, we wait for the pinon to get ripe, go out, pick pinon. There's just a lot of stuff you can do out there. People like to hunt, but I don't hunt anymore. I think I feel sorry for them animals. Mm. Mm. So, home language, Dulcie. Man, that was a lot, Lauren. Well, I got more. <laughs> <laughs> so, is this home? This is home for me. This is something about the reservation has drawn me since I was little. They have a youth workforce here. And when I was 16, I came and I stayed here in the summer with my uncle so I could work. Mm -hmm. So I met a lot of my relatives here. And I remember going to a culture camp when I was, God, I was young, with a lot of the young people from here. And I remember them. In those days, oh, golly, what are we talking about, the 60s? They had put a teepee up for us, and that's the first time I slept in a teepee. And all the girls that were in my teepee, they all had long braids, all of them. And what my mom did, because we lived in Oklahoma, it's so hot, we had those Dutch boy kind of haircuts. My hair was short. And I noticed that about them, that they had long braids. I really enjoyed it. So you like memories. Memories play a role in your life. How do you feel about memory? I love to think of the good stuff, you know, like being out there at the ranch with my grandma and grandpa, remembering, you know, because my grandma, the way she did things, you know, I learned from her. Or when my mom was out there, used to go out there and help her with her goats. So you you just learn just by watching and 
So those are the memories I like to keep. The bad ones, yeah, there's there's a lot of crazy things that happen, especially during my alcohol drug phase. You know, when I was practicing all kind of stuff to, you know, when you're young, you have attitudes. You know, I had one too. I used to like to smoke weed a lot. And I had come across an indigenous elder. And so I told him about marijuana. I said, well, it's natural, comes from Mother Earth. You know, why can't we smoke it? And he says, yeah, he says, you're right, it is. It's, it's a medicine for pain. And he was just telling me all what the medicine's for. He says, but you use it for its purpose. You don't abuse it. You know, like I was using it just to get high. He says, if you don't use it for its purpose, then it'll work against you. And I always tell people, I don't know if you've ever, well, I'm sure, well, when you smoke marijuana, <laughs> this is just my experience with it. And it seems like it's that way. If you just smoke it to get high, it really kills your ambition. You just sit around, get high, and that's my experience with it. Because that's what I did. Like I just bummed around and smoked weed. Yeah. When I was in my bumming period, in my 20s, I participated in The Longest Walk. You know, in those days, Congress was trying to pass laws to abrogate treaties with tribes. So the American Indian Movement had organized this spiritual walk. You know, they had gotten this peace pipe that they filled over in Alcatraz, and they were going to walk across the country to D.C. and talk to the president. So me and a couple of my cousins, we joined up. I just had a backpack, and, and that was the first time I experienced being Native American. You know, I went to Sweat Lodge, I listened to the elders when they spoke, and that was an amazing experience. I think that's what got me on my path to wanting to know who I am as a Native. Really powerful, really powerful. I've just been called to live here because it's kind of my roots, you know, from my mother and staying out there with my grandpa and grandma. I just loved you mm-hmm. know, being part of this community. So we're all Hickory Apaches. We all have a history together. A lot of us have family together. You know, I belong to them and they belong to me. I think if all of us go back far enough, we can find some kind of connection by blood. Because in the 1920s, you know, there was a lot of disease that hit the reservation. And I can't remember the number of people that were put here on the reservation. But I know that in 1920, when the nurses went out and tried to count the people, there was about 588 people left. Mm. And if it wasn't for the Reformed Church, you know, the pastor there... And that Emmett Wirt that owned the trading posts, you know, there were these two white people in the community that they wrote to Washington to get some assistance for the Hickorias. Because we could have been one of those tribes that, you know, just wiped off the face of the earth because of disease. It was just really rampant here on the reservation. Wow. What do you currently do with your time? Well, I retired in 2010. Prior to that, I was the director of the Cultural Affairs Office for the tribe for about 13 years. And that was probably the most enlightening experience I've ever had because I got a chance to hang around all the old folks. You know, most of them are gone now because I was in my 30s at the time. So I learned, you know, my identity as Hickory Apache. I got to learn some of the language, the customs. I did everything that I could. You know, like I know how to tan hide. I know how to make moccasins. I know how to make a teepee, you know, I know a lot of the plants. I just learned a lot from those old folks. It was a good experience for me. I really enjoyed it, working there. One of the things that we did while I was there in 1993, the leadership had organized this 
Hickory Apache Culture Committee, and those were my advisors when I was working there. That's why I got to work with those old guys. There's one elder that he made me feel like I belonged because sometimes, because I'm half Ikaria, people here can be cruel. You know, you're just half-breed. You know, your mother left here a long time ago. You're not from here. You know, you're Ida, you're the enemy, all this stuff they can say to you. Wow. But this one guy, when the culture committee first got together, some of the old folks were saying it. Well, who are we going to teach? There's not any Apaches left. We have all these half-breeds that are here now. And that one elder says, no, we're not going to talk like that. He says, if you have Apache blood in you, you're Apache, he said. So he stopped them from talking that way. And I always say, if it wasn't for him, I would not have hung around as long as I did. I would have just said, you know, the heck with you guys. That's mm -hmm. the way you want to think? You know, mm -hmm. I'm out of here. But because of him, I stayed. So when he told me that, that I was a real Apache, I felt real good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. And now that I'm retired and at this age, now I'm an elder on the Hickory Apache Culture Committee. So we still do a lot of projects. We still travel. Next month, we're going to an elders gathering in Washington State. And this past month, we were in Chihuahua, Mexico with some of those Apache people down there. There's a lot of good basic foundational value systems that we try to share with young people. Or, you know, the people that want it, we try to let them know because I think when the elders come together, they're always concerned about what's happening in our community with our young people. I don't know if they told you that someone committed suicide yesterday, and it's a shame to say that we've had a lot of that. At my age now, I just know so many people who are gone around my age or younger than I am because of alcoholism, drugs, domestic violence, We've had murder in our community. It's just so much social problems that we have. So that's what we do as a culture committee. We're, we're working on trying to bring the values back. And one of the main ones is the language. The English language, it, it's really focused on nouns and objects. Because you know, going to school, it's the first thing you do when you try to diagram a sentence, you look for the noun. And then usually there's some object or you, know, you get to the verbs and if it's an action verb and all this. So it's a structure so that the white man is good at identifying and putting labels, you know, on these different kind of words in the English language. Well, when these linguists come in, there's that mentality that they have. They're trying to identify these words as if it's a noun or if it's an adverb. They're identifying these pieces of the language that way. And it doesn't fit. I always say that if you pick up the language book that Rita Martin did, you know, some white man linguist came in and he says, well, tell me, how do you say, hello, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Because that's how you speak in English. So they make it up. You know, that's not how they speak, but they make it up. Tanjo, hatiyanzi, doanzi. So they make it up, and so the whole dictionaries are usually based on the white man's idea of how it should be spoken. And I say, that's not how people speak. I say, how do they speak? Our word for money is jath. So I said, is it possible that... <laughs> because we didn't have a word for money. Somebody made that up a long time ago. Because I'm a language learner, you know, I guess my views are different than someone who grew up with the language. Like, you know, it was mentioned the word tanjo, you know, it's translated in English as hello or greetings, but it doesn't mean that, really. If you look at the 
morphemes of it. Da is like a an exemplifier that exaggerates whatever you're saying. Njo is like that things are good or it's in balance, harmony, kind of a word. Njo, Njo. That's what it means. Long ago, when we used to live out on our lands, you know, these different groups would come together and they would say Thanjo to each other. And the answer is oh, which means yes, oh, Thanjo. Like, it's kind of like saying, oh, oh, yes, I agree, it's good, it's balanced. People come together and they'll say Thanjo, oh, Thanjo, Hashi, or Hatye, or Hatye now, or, you know, something to say, well, where are you coming from? Where are you going? And then they'll start talking about places to gather, you know, like, is there good hunting over here? And it's all connected to the land. Because, you know, in those days it was about survival. It was all about the land. I know you've heard it from other Native people, how indigenous peoples are so connected to the land. It's in the language. You know, it's, that's why. And I'm getting to think that way, too, when I was telling you, go north, go east, go south. It's all connected to the directions and the land, and that's how they speak. And it just gets me excited because I understand. It's yeah. not me memorizing that that's a lake and that's a river. You know, I know the pieces of the cool is water. Right. It's more about the action. Huh? It's movement and it's action and it's... Instead of the thing. Yeah, it's, it's not a noun. It's a... It's or an adjective or it's just that is that. Yeah, that's that. But it always conjures up uses. Yeah. Because one of the things they used to say, you know, in English, they'll use the word, well, I'm going to go make wood. First time I heard that, I said, how are you going to make wood? But it's a translation. When you say it like that, you know that they're going to go cut wood and they're going to get it and they're going to stack it and, you know, all the, the whole, stuff about making wood. Yeah. yeah, That's interesting. Sure is. And that's one of the things that we're doing as a culture committee is, you know, they're available for people to ask these kind of questions. What are the Apache ways? <sighs> There's lots. You know, number one is respect. You respect all things. You respect the land. You know, we respect Mother Earth. We respect each other as people. You know, you might think differently than me, but that's okay. I'm going to respect you just however you are. You know, you respect that person, and, and you don't talk back to someone that's older. You know, if my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, if they're all still alive, even my older sister, she'll say stuff to me, but I know that if I want to be practicing my ways as Hickory Apache, I will not talk back to her. And I don't. She can say some horrible things to me, but I won't say a word. But it is my responsibility to teach my younger siblings. But we're not there yet, because I've tried, and they just get mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that's one thing that we're trying to teach young people. you got to hold your tongue. And when I got transferred over to the director of the Hickory Cultural Affairs Office, and I had to learn those old folks, they would come in and point their finger in my face and tell me off. But they didn't really say anything bad to me. It was more like, you shouldn't do this. You should do, you know, trying to correct me in my behaviors. And I took it because I wanted it. You know, I wanted to know what a Hickory Apache culture was. Young people, they don't do that nowadays. So I know that there's power in being Apache if you practice it because it does take practice Mm -hmm. you know I I had to change a lot of my behaviors 
learning from them because they taught me to try to decolonize myself, you mm-hmm. know, and not being so manganish. I have faith in the power of the language, the power of our way of lives as indigenous peoples, because I've compared it, because I grew up with the white man. You know, I was the only person of color in my whole school experience until I graduated from high school. I didn't have any real native friends until I started college. I was just among the white people. So I learned, and now I can understand things that happened to me when I was in high school that I didn't understand. For example, if you're around an old folk, they talk real slow. White people, they talk real fast. In my class, man, they talk so fast. After a while, I just gave up because I couldn't, you know how you're trying to just be in the conversation and you can't get in that because they're... And I didn't understand it. That's a cultural difference. So you want future generations to preserve the Apache way and the language. Yep. The values, mm-hmm. because you know we're going to be doing things different. It's you know it's a new world. They have new things, technology and stuff. But it's the values of the respect and not being lazy and don't shame your community. You know, having love for one another, to understanding the unity of who we are, for having some faith in our ways to believe in. Because I've seen in my lifetime, you know, elders making predictions that have come true. I've seen them do things out of the normal, mm-hmm. you know, like they'll be in ceremony and you'll see this feather start dancing, you know, stuff like that. They're just able to do stuff. And I've seen some predictions come true. Mm. When I was in my 20s, I heard prophecies from indigenous peoples. And I hear the Apaches talk about things that are coming. And I would like to share that one. People who ask us is that, it's just some hard times coming for the people because Mother Earth is going to cleanse herself because there's too many people on the planet. Some of the technologies are being abused. You know, our people, the wars, you know, all the stuff that's happening on the planet. I don't know if you want to call it global warming or whatever, but these hard times are coming. And I always tell people that I've seen prophecies come true in my lifetime too, and I. I always think that there's some that haven't come true, but if I've seen these ones come true, why am I questioning whether these other ones are going to come true or not? You know, for example, some of them were just amazing because in the 20s, they were telling us that water was going to be so precious that we would spend a lot of money just for water. And then in the 70s, water was just abundant, you know. You could drink it from the streams and drink it from the lakes, and it just seems so ridiculous to think that we would pay a lot of money for water, you know, today, bottled water. So as the Culture Committee, you know, we do consultations with these national parks and national forests, and they're diverting water. They're using pumps, and they're pumping water to these uh, lakes and stuff and building reservoirs so that people can have water where there's no water. But they're pumping the water up to these places. Mm. And to us, water is like the blood of Mother Earth. You know, to divert it is not a good thing because you're messing around with the natural law. And that was one I heard, too, and I'm wondering if this is what it is. They said that the rivers would flow in reverse. Instead of going downhill, they'll start going up. Another one I remember was that they were telling us there was going to be this spider that's going to spin its web around the world 
and that people would talk to other people on the other side of the world through this web. And at the time, you know, I remember who was telling us about that. He says, we think it's the telephone because you can pick up a telephone now and call somebody on the other side of the world. But now we know today what he's talking about is the World Wide Web. Mm. You know, that's come true. Wow. So the concern that I have is to share this with people so that they can be prepared. There are tribes that are, as a people, they're preparing themselves for these hard times. The thing is, it doesn't have to be if we could all come together as a people, you know, that we all realize what we're doing and start changing our ways as far as protecting the earth and using the good technologies. But I believe that it's the United States that's preventing a lot of this because it's all about capitalism. It's all about them making money. And, you know, some of these guys that came back from the Iraq war, that's what they say. It's all about the oil over there. That's what the United States wanted. I know that these indigenous peoples, they go to the United Nations because they want a seat on the United Nations to represent the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And it's the United States that's been preventing it. They don't want the indigenous peoples to have a seat on the United Nations. So, yeah, I don't trust the United States. Who do you trust? Ooh, wow. That's <laughs> yes, hard questions. Who do I trust? I think it's somebody you can trust your secrets with. Mm-hmm. You tell them a secret and they won't go tell somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the trust. I probably trust Brian a lot. You know, we're not together. We're just really good friends. And sometimes I think about him because we do a lot of stuff together. And you don't even care what the community think. You know, they think we're a couple. And I'm at the point now where I just don't care. So one time I was thinking about him. I said, you know what, he's probably my best friend because we talk about all kinds of things. You know, and he's real helpful when I start talking about the culture, trying to understand it, mm-hmm. just talk about the language. You know, I ask him, how come this and how come that? And he's a medicine person in the community. You know, he's part of the Bear Dance Society. You know, he helps at the Gojia. You know, he's right there, and he's one of those, you know, that participate. And he's a very good teacher, so he teaches me a lot. We have a plant that we call bone medicine. It's for broken bones. Fifteen years ago, I was in this really bad car accident. Uh, We hit a deer, an airbag came and it like hit me right here on the side of my face and I didn't know it was that bad until I saw my x-rays. My whole face, I broke like seven teeth. I had an orbital blowout. My jaw was broke. This whole side of my face was concaved. And um, that's when I was Brian at the time and I told him, I want you to get that medicine because I knew about the bone medicine. I said, I want you to use that because, you know, my face swelled up like a pumpkin. So, but it's not just putting the medicine, it's the prayer. They always tell us that use medicine for what it's meant for. So this is meant for broken bones. So he would make a salve or something and he would put it on my face and I would sleep with it at night on my face for my broken bones. And the doctors were telling me that my face was going to be asymmetrical and that I'd have to do some reconstructive surgery and all this stuff. And, you know, the swelling went down and they had... Uh, gave an appointment for me to go down and have surgery so they could rebuild my face. So they were going to put a plate right here on my forehead. And sometimes I think I'm so naive because I went down to the doctor and he was going like this. And he says, well, we're not going to have to do any surgery today because my face looked fine. You know, it wasn't 
asymmetrical, right. none of that. You know, I had to have some, some my teeth capped because they were broke, and that's where the power is. It's, it's in all, the whole process of it. That's the connectedness. And that's why I believe in the medicine, you know, because I've seen it work. You know, it's worked on me. So I start using it now. You know, I broke my toe, too, and I stuck it on there, and I just fixed myself. I didn't go to no doctor. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So I, he teaches me a lot, so I ask questions. But he's not the only one. There's other people. Because I always like to compare, you know, well, he told me this, and I'll go find out from somebody else. Is that true? Is <laughs> that what he said? And usually it is, you know, what he tells me. So he's probably the one I trust the most. And I have another friend. I just don't have a whole lot. She's Hispanic. She's the one that helped me get the divorce. Her and I, are, we're still good friends. Do you like technology? Do you feel like it's good for society and culture? There's good and bad. The bad is it really can't take over. Like Even my grandson now, he just makes me so mad. When you go to eat out and he's sitting there on his phone, and I tell him, can you put your phone away? You know, that I think isn't good because they get obsessed with it. But it can be good because it's a good communication thing. I've set up a Facebook page called Hickory Apache Events. You know, and all we do is just post flyers so people know what's going on in the community. There's like over 2,000 people that follow that page because they just want to know what's going on, you know. I've set up another Facebook page for tribal members only, and it's called Hickory Apache Affairs. And that's kind of a political page. And so it just tribal members are on there, so we are free to speak about some of the political issues that are happening and so a lot of the concerns of young people. It's a what's good been one. happening? My opinion, coming from me, you know, when we were put here on the reservation, we were given a boilerplate constitution. It's kind of fashioned after the United States government. And the people in those days, in 1937, you know, the people just kind of approved it, wanting the Bureau of Indian Affairs to take care of us. So we approved this constitution, and it hasn't really been amended since then, but it's, it doesn't represent who we are as Hickory Apache people. It's just a white man boilerplate, and it sets up these structures, you know, like supposedly, you know, we have a legislative branch, an uh, executive branch, and a judicial branch, but it doesn't work that way. Our leaders, the legislative branch basically rules and a lot of the issues and concerns that come up is the greed that happens and their power mainly greed and there's a lot of it that's that we see and there's no transparency they're just doing stuff and nobody knows anything about what's going on and so they talk a lot about that that's probably the biggest issue is the transparency because mm. nobody knows what's going on mm -hmm. They're making these million-dollar decisions on behalf of the people, and they're not listening to people. It's hard to to find them in their office, and you can. I've lobbied them before, and they tell me good things, but nothing ever really happens. They're just telling you what you want to hear, <laughs> and then they don't do anything. It must be frustrating. Oh, yeah, lots of frustration. Face-to-face -face is better. I, I don't really post on Facebook, even though I've got those pages, because... A lot of times, they just don't interpret it right. It just don't come out right. Mm -hmm. So I try to not post too much because it's not what I'm saying from my heart. It's so <laughs> it comes out, and then I, I get in trouble. Right. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts, things I might not have covered, anything you want to say, last word style? Coming from the white world and seeing the difference between that culture and the culture that I am in right now with the indigenous people, 
it's my belief that the Native people really do have answers for all of our problems. I believe that, you know, all species want to survive, and we're the same. Human beings just want to survive. So that's my belief now, that, and that's what I want to just let people know, that if you're, if you're around Indigenous peoples, if you learn a Native language, I you know, I'd say go for it because it opens up your world to a whole different way of being as a human being and being in our natural environment. I think to me that's the that's the path to go. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>